Scripture reading today is taken from Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 to 21. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. For, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mortal. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mortal, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of battle where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose, set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill of Gilead. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Tamheng, for reading scripture for us. And a very good morning to you all. So good to see you gathered here today. Uh, before we jump into the sermon, uh, just a quick plug for the book table downstairs. Uh, you all are well aware that we have a book table on level three, so do check it out after the service. And uh, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and sometimes as we go through these individual Old Testament stories, we might not see the big picture. And it's very helpful to see how all these individual Old Testament stories really hang together in, in this larger story of what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. There's one continuous story of His plan of salvation. So this is a really helpful book called God's Big Picture, a Bible Overview. This book helps you to see how all these different books of the Bible are really one continuous story culminating in Christ and 
consummated in the new heavens and new earth. So it's a free copy for the first person who raises their hand. Oh, there, right, Ryan, very fast off the bat. All right, so come and get it for me after the service. All right, friends, let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Dear Father, we thank you indeed that you are God who has spoken. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us now by your Spirit. We pray that you would open our hearts, remove uh, distractions or hindrances, remove uh, anything that obstructs us from hearing you. So Father, we pray that you bless us. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've had the uh, joy of celebrating quite a number of birthdays recently. So apparently quite a, quite a few of us are born in May. Uh, I celebrated my own birthday as well. And I, you know, I've gotten to an age where every birthday is a reminder of God's faithfulness, but also a reminder that the clock is definitely ticking. You now I'm now firmly in midlife, uh, defined as between 45 and 64 years old. So you can guess where in midlife I fall. Uh, for some... Middle age can prompt soul-searching questions about the meaning and purpose of life. Uh, hence, there's such a thing as the midlife crisis where people you know, face this existential crisis about what is life all about. According to life coaches, surveyed by Forbes magazine, I read this article recently, you know, maybe because I just celebrated a birthday, <laughs> there's some signs that we may be experiencing a midlife crisis. Right? Number one, we are apathetic. Number two, our life is on autopilot with no clear goal in sight. Number three, we are caught up in the day-to-day and we've lost our sense of a larger purpose. Number four, we may feel dissatisfied with the present and confused about where we are headed in the future. So four signs that we may be experiencing a midlife crisis according to these life coaches. Well, we don't have to be in middle age or experience a midlife crisis to wrestle with questions like these. Right? Uh, these struggles uh, really get at the fundamental questions of life. You know, and, and there are really a few questions that we can ask. Right? Number one, where are we going? Number two, how will we get there? And number three, how can we be sure that we will get there? Right? Where are we going? How will we get there? And how can we be so sure that we will get there. Well, Jacob might might have been wondering the same thing. Uh, It has been 20 long years since Jacob left home to escape from his older brother Esau. When we first meet Jacob, he is a liar and a cheat. He's a self-made man who relies on his own cleverness and cunning to get on in life. So he deceives his father Isaac to steal Esau's blessing. But later, uh, Jacob meets his match, doesn't he? in his father-in-law, Laban. Laban tricked Jacob into marrying the wrong woman, making Jacob serve an extra seven years to marry the right woman, Rachel. Then, after serving 14 years for Leah and Rachel, Jacob served another six years to obtain animals for his own flock. So, 20 years. Maybe Jacob was facing some kind of midlife crisis of his own. You know, the, the years have been difficult for Jacob, you know, filled with sin and strife. You know, we read about that in Genesis 30, the division and discord in his own family between his wives. Nonetheless, Jacob has personally known God's faithfulness. God has blessed him with children who will then go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
God has prospered Jacob. But there's one aspect of God's promises that haven't been fulfilled, and that is when will Jacob be able to return home? After 20 long years, where is he going? How will he get there and how can he be so sure that he will get there? Well, in Genesis 28, when God appeared to Jacob in the vision of the stairway to heaven, God promised to bring him back to the land. He says in Genesis 28, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And then in Genesis 31, which is our text for today, we see God keeping his word. God calls Jacob to return to the promised land. So this really is the big idea of our passage this morning. God calls us to follow him by faith, trusting him to protect and provide and to lead us safely home. Let me say that once again. God calls us to follow him by faith, trusting him to protect and provide and to lead us safely home. So this really gets to the fundamental questions of life. So number one, we'll go through this sermon in three points. So number one, crisis and call. God calls us to follow him. So six years have passed since Jacob first asked to leave. At that time, Laban was reluctant to let his son-in-law go because Laban knew that God blessed him for Jacob's sake. But now the situation has changed. There is growing tension in the household. Jacob is no stranger to family drama. This time, the friction isn't with his brother, but with his brothers-in-law. Laban's sons resent Jacob's success, which they claim has come at their father's expense. Laban's sons uh, despise Jacob right? because he, he seems to be more successful than them. But of course, we, we know that Jacob hasn't done ill to Laban. Right? Jacob has faithfully served Laban for 20 years. In fact, Jacob has prospered despite Laban's underhanded dealings with his son-in-law. So Jacob overhears what his brothers-in-laws are saying about him and he realizes that Laban himself no longer regards him with favor as before. It has become increasingly difficult to live with his in-laws. And Jacob's experience illustrates how God's people will face opposition in the world. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Jacob's facing that opposition from those who do not know God and they malign him, they falsely accuse him although he's seeking to be faithful and to do the right thing. Laban and his sons show us how fickle the opinions of others can be. They show us how futile it is for us to try to live for man's approval. If we base our sense of well-being on what others think of us, then I fear that we will lose our stability every time someone thinks less of us. For example, if my main motivation at work is to gain my boss's approval or to gain my client's approval, then I'll be crushed every time my boss or my clients or my colleagues don't give me the recognition that I want. It can be devastating to not have the approval of others. If we live or we die by what others think of us, you know, God often works through our trials to show us our need for Him 
and to call us to himself. Earlier, amid the crisis of fleeing from his vengeful brother, God called Jacob to follow him. And now, amid another crisis, conflict with his in-laws, God again calls Jacob. I think in doing so, God shows that he knows the distress of his people. He is intimately involved in the lives of his people. He sees what's going on in our lives and he acts and he intervenes in our lives because he knows his people and he loves his people. And when God calls Jacob to return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, verse 3, it shows that God has not forgotten his promises. The Lord is faithful. He sees us in our distress. He hears our cries for help. And he encourages us to draw near to him, to follow him. And he calls us. He invites us to come, to rest in his promises. So supremely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He calls us to trust in his son, especially in our times of crises. Well, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were each called by God to follow him. God called Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, to leave his homeland and to go to the land that God would show him, Genesis 12. God called Jacob's father, Isaac, to stay in the promised land during a famine instead of moving to Egypt, Genesis 26. Now, God calls Jacob to return to the promised land that he left 20 years ago. God reminds Jacob of how he had committed and consecrated himself to follow God. He says in verse 13 in our text, I am the God of Bethel, where you, Jacob, anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. You know, perhaps Jacob had gotten quite comfortable and maybe a bit too settled in Padan Aram with his father-in-law. Yes, you know, life is difficult. Uh, His in-laws don't like him. But, you know, it is difficult still to uproot your whole family and to move, right? It's a long journey. And now Jacob has a large family, he has flocks. You know, the idea of moving that whole brood to Padan, from Padan Aram to back to the Promised Land, it, it's a daunting one for Jacob. You know, remember Jacob, he's a man who, who enjoys the quiet life. He's a man who lives in tents. Right? He doesn't like change and moving about. So perhaps Jacob had gotten a bit comfortable in Padanaram, and God has to come and remind Jacob, hey, you don't belong here, right? You, you don't belong here. You're, you're meant to be in the promised land, and perhaps you've forgotten your commitment and, and, and the way you've consecrated yourself to me those 20 years ago. Right? So God comes to Jacob and reminds him of the vow that Jacob had made at Bethel all those years ago. Yeah, perhaps God is reminding us as well of our former commitments to him, Maybe we've gotten too comfortable where we are and God comes to us and says, follow me, follow me. Have you forgotten the commitment that you've made to me all those years ago? We follow God by trusting and obeying His Word. Such faith isn't just lip service, right? The the kind of faith that God is calling for involves a change of life, right? Involves a change of direction, uh, faith turns our lives towards God. It's not just something that we say, that yes, God, I believe you, but rather it's something that we say and then we show that belief how by making changes in our lives. Right? We, we turn and we orientate our lives towards God and, and, those, and, and then we, be, we begin to bear the good fruit of obedience. 
Abraham, Isaac and Jacob may not be perfect, but they are nonetheless examples to us of what it means for us to live life by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11 tells us that these men, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but they were on this journey and they trusted God through this journey. And like them, we are also journeying through this life, through this world as strangers and exiles until we arrive at our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. So beloved, how is God calling us to go, to step out in faith and to serve Him? How is God calling us to stay, to patiently wait upon Him and to persevere by faith through the trials that God wisely brings into our lives? How is God calling us to return, to repent of how we have perhaps grown too comfortable, that we've drifted away from God and maybe some of us have lost our first love? How is He calling us to return, to renew our commitment to Him? Oh, beloved, the good news for us is that we don't walk through this world's wilderness on our own. God promises to be with us. This faithful, covenant-keeping Lord comes and He calls Jacob, but He also assures Jacob. Right? In verse 3, I will be with you. Right? Follow me. Why? Because you're not doing it on your own. Because I will be with you. Right? We can go, we can stay, we can turn back to God. Why? Because He promises to be with us. God graciously restates what he promised to Jacob at Bethel those 20 years ago. Right? He says in Genesis 28, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 28. And here he says again to Jacob, I am with you. I am still with you. All these years I have not left you. And even if you go by faith, I am still going with you. Beloved, that's the assurance that we have, that this God never leaves us, nor forsakes us. Therefore, we can do big things for God. Not, because, not in our own strength, but because we rely on this faithful God. God has not left us alone to follow Him in our own strength. God promises to be with His disciples. Well, Jesus promises to be with His disciples, always, to the end of the age. And friends, if we are in Christ, then God dwells with us by His Spirit. And I would say to us that we have something, or we have someone far more than what Jacob had. We have the Spirit poured out, given to God's followers now in the New Testament, and the Spirit lives with us. And, and together we are the Spirit-indwelt people of God. And God is present with us, not just individually, but He's present with us as the people of God, And together, we encourage one another to press on in faith and faithfulness to Jesus until the end. We, we experience God's presence not just as individual believers, but we experience the very presence of God in the presence of His Spirit indwelt people. I think this is why we encourage us to gather, because this is where we receive help from God. This is where we know that God is present. How? Because we see Him in the lives of one another. God's Spirit is working in us, transforming us 
as His people from one degree of glory to another. So beloved, I I pray that we would take heart. I pray that we would be encouraged that we do not walk this journey on our own. God is with us and we are with His people. And He who began a good work in us will complete it when our Lord Jesus returns. Number two, faith and flight. We go by faith in God. So from what we've seen of Jacob so far, he has faith. But he can also be prone to relying on himself rather than trusting in God. So how will Jacob respond to God's call? Previously, Jacob let himself be caught between his two warring wives. And instead of leading them spiritually, as we, as we saw about him in chapter 30, Jacob passively went along with their worldly schemes to bear children. This time, Jacob responds differently. You see how he is the one who takes the initiative to call Rachel and Leah to meet with him. And Jacob's the one who speaks to them about the sensitive matter of leaving their father Laban. Imagine talking to his wife saying, hey, you need to leave your dad because your, your father's not a good guy. That, that, would, that might have been a difficult conversation. So how will Jacob try to persuade his wives? You know, we're often tempted in these situations to speak in man-centered or worldly ways, right? We, we tend to kind of use our words to, you know, maybe untwist someone into doing what we want. So what do we do? We, we flatter them. We threaten them. We raise our voice. We make ourselves all sad and pitiful so maybe the person will feel sorry for us and do what we want. You know, we manipulate people to try to do what we want them to do. You know, I, I catch myself doing all of these things with my own children. So how would, Jacob resp- how would Jacob interact with his wives on this rather sensitive matter of leaving home? Well, he doesn't do any of that, but instead, he testifies of God's faithfulness and grace throughout the hardship that he endured under Laban. It's, it's quite a striking speech that he makes to his wives. And and some commentators have said, this is one of the high points of Jacob's life, what he says and how he says it to his wives. Jacob prospered despite his father-in-law's mistreatment of him, not because of his own efforts, but because of what God had done. And and Jacob recognises that in this speech very clearly. He's now come to understand what it means to depend on God's grace. And in, this, in his speech to his wives, he, he doesn't take any credit at all, but he gives God the glory again and again. He reminds his wife that God has been faithful. Right, look, 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 look at this in verse 5. The God of my father has been with me. Verse 7, God did not permit him to harm me. Verse 9, Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Again and again, Jacob reminds his wives, God is faithful. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about how God has been faithful to us and therefore we can go. We can return to the land in obedience to Him. Beloved, how have we used our words this past week? How has our communication, whether verbal, written, social media, how have we given thanks and praise to God? How have we spoken to others around us, our loved ones, our friends? Have our words encouraged them to glorify God? 
And you see how Jacob leads his family to behold the goodness and grace of God. And he shows us this is what godly spiritual leadership looks like, especially in the family. It is not harsh or overbearing. It does not seek to manipulate good behavior. Rather, it points others to the grace and faithfulness of God. Husbands and fathers in particular, our spiritual leadership in the home begins with our personal faith in God. Right? J- Jacob speaks to his wives in this way. Why? Because he himself knows God's grace. He, he, he has a personal experience of God's faithfulness and therefore he's able to speak to his wives in this way. It's not put on, it's not fake. He's not trying to deceive them. Rather, he's speaking from a heart gripped by a personal experience of God's grace. And fathers and husbands, that's where we need to be. If our hearts are gripped by God's grace, we will speak to our families differently. We will lead our wives faithfully. Not to get them to do what we want, but to point them to the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. Jacob himself first responds to God's word with trust and obedience. Then he encourages Rachel and Leah to do so. Now, this is why we do the family dedication the way we do. Right? We, we pray for these families. Most of all, we pray for these parents that they, they will know and love Jesus so that when their children grow up, they have in their parents, not perfect examples, but faithful and genuine examples of what it means to know and love Jesus. Yes, it doesn't guarantee that, their children will, that our children will become Christians, but at least we can be faithful examples to them of what it means to know and love Jesus. And so pray for our parents. Pray for me as I parent. Pray for Claire, my wife, as we parent. Pray that we ourselves would know and love Jesus so that our children will see that what we say to them is not fake, that we're not hypocrites, but that we ourselves truly desire the Lord. Pray for us. Jacob has made spiritual progress, hasn't he? God has used the 20 years of Jacob's hardship to transform him from a self-sufficient schemer into a God-dependent worshipper. Before, Jacob was a spiritually inattentive husband. He was quite passive. But now, he leads his family to follow God. Our good and wise God works all things, including our trials, together for our spiritual good. Now, we tend to want quick fixes. Now, we tend to want holiness now. We want shortcuts to glory. But Jacob's example reminds us to wait on God, to trust in his process, to grow us in the faith. It's taken 20 years for Jacob. You know, how long will God work in our lives? I don't think there's a time limit that we can set for God to work. You know, it's a lot like exercise, isn't it? Uh, for example, some of us may be training for a marathon. If, if, especially if you're going from couch to marathon, what do you do? You don't start the first week by running 42 kilometers. Uh, I guarantee you will not make it past the first week. So what do you do? You know, if you're going from couch to marathon, you, you run a kilometer a day, maybe, maybe two kilometers. Maybe you start running 10 kilometers a week, 15, 20, 30. It, it, it's, it's gradual, isn't it? And I think that's how God deals with us as well. Right? He doesn't put tremendous weight on us right at the beginning, but He works in us gradually over time. And we need to trust in His process 
Sometimes it will feel as if it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it feels as if it's two steps back, one step forward. But we trust in God's process. Just as we see Him work in Jacob's life, God will make us more like Jesus in His time. We can trust His promise. We don't rush spiritual growth and there are no shortcuts to sanctification. You know, I, I love the hymn that we sing here sometimes by John Newton. Right? It's a hymn, it's a very personal hymn that John Newton wrote expressing his desire to grow in the faith. And the hymn starts out in the first, it's, it's really a story, so you've got to read the whole hymn. But we only have time to maybe highlight a few stanzas in the hymn. So the hymn starts out with John Newton saying, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. So great request, right? For growth, for spiritual depth, for greater awareness of God's grace. So really good spiritual, really good prayer request. And then as you read the, the next few stanzas in the hymn, you, you find that John Newton experiences even more struggle. Right? He, he faces even more trouble. Right? He begins to wonder, what, what's going on? You know, I've prayed for a spiritual growth. Why am I feeling as if I'm further away from God? Why am I struggling so much? And then in the final stanza of the hymn, John Newton writes from God's perspective. Right? And God says this in the final stanza. He says, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. You know, may it be so for us as well. You know, I pray that God will also work in this way in our lives to help us to really see Him more and more clearly. And I, I think we see God also work in the hearts of Jacob's wives. Previously, their rivalry sidelined their husband who became a mere pawn caught between them. But this time, both Leah and Rachel follow their husband's lead. Uh, they agree with him and they acknowledge how their father has indeed treated them unjustly. And most importantly, they affirm how God has provided for them. Both Rachel and Leah you know, amazingly encourage Jacob to do what God says. Right? They say, go, obey God. Yes, we shall all obey God with you. You know, it's a wonderful turn of events for this family, this rather troubled family. So Jacob gathers his family and possessions and he runs away from Laban. You know, for one who prefers a quiet and settled life, you know, this, was, this was a difficult thing for Jacob to do, to leave with his whole family and to move them back to the promised land. But faith in God's promises gives us the boldness to leave our comfort zones and to go forth in obedience to God. And then we see Jacob's re resolution to return to the promised land. Right? He says, it says in verse 21, he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face. That, that's an expression of resolution. He set his face. He refused to be turned to the left or the right. He set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. And Jacob goes by faith in God. And God graciously transforms Jacob's family into a family of devotion. And to keep his word to bring Jacob back to the promised land, God providentially puts everything in place. And in the same way, when God calls us, we can go by faith, trusting him to pave the way for us to follow him. 
when he calls us to go by faith, he doesn't give us all the information that we necessarily want. He doesn't always give us the plan that we want. You know, he doesn't let us control all the details. But he simply calls us to put one step of faith in front of the next. Why? Because we can entrust everything else to God. And that's what it means to go by faith. It doesn't mean that we have everything nicely planned out. It doesn't mean that we know everything that will happen. But we know, the, we know the destination, don't we? And we can trust God to get us there. So take one step of faith at a time. That's where God is leading us. Number three, pursuit and protection. God protects and provides for us. Let me read for us the rest of the chapter, reading from verse 22 until the end. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt about all the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin? that you have hotly pursued me. For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labour of my hands and rebuked you last night. 
Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children. The flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children, whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagasahadutha, but Jacob called it Galit. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galit and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So on the third day, Laban finds out that Jacob has fled and he's furious. Furious because he's lost the source of his gain. So Laban sets out in pursuit and he's on a warpath. He is intent on bringing Jacob back by force if necessary. So Jacob is in danger. Although his, he has a three-day head start, traveling with his wives, children and flocks slow him down. And sure enough, Laban overtakes Jacob. And there may have been blood. Had God not intervened to protect Jacob, God appears to Laban in a dream, saying to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. You know, in, in this dream, God puts Laban in his place. Right? He puts this rather proud man in his place, helps Laban to realize that he has no power over Jacob, either to prosper Jacob or to harm Jacob. All that Jacob has, he owes to God, not Laban. And God is with Jacob just as he promised. Throughout Genesis, God has constantly been present with his people and he's intervened time and time again to protect Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In Genesis 20, for example, God appears similarly in a dream to Abimelech, warning him not to touch Sarah because she is Abraham's wife. I think in, in the lives of these patriarchs, we see how the sovereign God watches over us and he brings his power and authority to bear for our good. And more than that, God safeguards his covenant promises. And God will not, God will not fail to fulfill his word and salvation plan to bless the nations through Abraham. And because of God's commitment to bless the nations through Abraham and to raise up a promised offspring for Abraham, he protects Jacob from Laban. You know how assuring it is that if we belong to God, then he is for us. But of course, Laban is too full of himself to see this. And he accuses Jacob of wronging him and stubbornly insists that Jacob's wives, children and flocks actually belong to him. 
You know, the fact that Laban's daughters do not speak up in support of their own father should have made him rather circumspect. I think should have made him realize perhaps he's got it all wrong. I think Laban is an example to us of how pride and self-righteousness can so blind us to our own folly and sin. And, but Laban is right about one thing. Uh, Laban is right that someone did indeed steal his household gods. But neither he nor, Ra- nor Jacob knows Rachel has taken them. Now, this is a bit of a puzzle. You know, why did Rachel steal her dad's household gods? Right? Well, it may have been out of spite, you know, because the daughters did complain that they've not gotten any inheritance from their father. Right? So maybe out of spite, to stick it to her father, she steals his gods. Or it may be because Rachel herself is still given to superstition and idol worship. You know, her life is kind of messy, right? She, she has faith in God, but is still mixed, perhaps, with some superstition and trust in idols. Well, the irony is that these gods have no power to save, right? You know, this, this is somewhat humorous. In this passage, why? Because Laban has to rescue his own gods. I think, I think the author of Genesis is helping us to see that it is the Lord who saves, not these false household gods. And what's worse, you know, to add insult to injury, what's worse is that the menstruating Rachel sits on them. You know, it's deeply humiliating to these gods. Right? She sits on them because she puts them in her saddle showing that these gods are fundamentally unclean and that they are worthless. You know, beloved, Scripture says we become like what we worship. This is a firm scriptural principle. It's a firm spiritual principle in Scripture that we become like what we worship. Laban has become like his idols. You know, he's become a, a bit of a tragic comic figure in Genesis 31. You know, he's lost his family and his wealth. His threats are hollow. His words are false. He has become a shell of a man. Why? Because he worships idols. He's become like them, powerless. You know, we become like what we worship. You know, whatever idols we cherish in our hearts, if we give ourselves to them, we begin to resemble them more and more. But this principle also speaks good news. If we follow Jesus, if we follow Jesus with all of our hearts, if we give ourselves to worship Him and to worship Him alone, then He transforms us to become more and more like Him. We become like who we worship. Jacob is justifiably angry at Laban and he protests that, his fa- that he has faithfully served with integrity these 20 years. Right? Jacob makes another speech in this chapter, this time to Laban. You know, th- this, is a, this is a wonderfully helpful speech right? where Laban says, this is all God's doing and I followed God. Right? So you have no right to be angry because I've only served you faithfully because I've tried to be faithful to God. Right, Jacob has gone beyond what, what is expected of him in his service to Laban. He has served Laban at his own expense, bearing the loss of animals himself. And Jacob shows us how we 
can be faithful at work, even with a terrible boss. Right? You see how Jacob understands himself to be working for the Lord and not ultimately for Laban. We work unto the Lord, not for man's approval. And even if our boss is undeserving, even if our boss is completely unappreciative, it doesn't matter ultimately. Why? Because we look to God for our vindication and acceptance. We don't live on the approval of others, but we live for God's pleasure. Right? Because if, if He has accepted us, then we have the acceptance that we need. And Jacob says this in verse 43, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. He says, God saw my affliction. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob is right and Laban knows it. And to save face, Laban concedes defeat, right? He tries to save face by kind of backing down without seeming like he's backing down. Uh, he, he makes a covenant with Jacob with both parties agreeing to go their separate ways and not to harm each other. So the conflict has been averted. Laban and Jacob part peacefully. So, so this, this chapter ends on a somewhat anticlimactic note, right? Because there's great danger that Jacob faces, Laban's coming to pursue him, and all that is resolved. And then they both part with kisses. And I think it shows that God is with Jacob, protecting and providing for him to lead him safely home to the promised land. Now, beloved, Jacob's escape from Laban from Laban foreshadows another great escape. Right? If you read this chapter, it, it speaks of how Jacob plunders Laban, right? leaves with Laban's wealth in that way. Of course, we read about the same thing in the Exodus, when Israel plunders Egypt and leaves with Egypt's wealth by God's doing. So this escape foreshadows that greater escape, Israel's exodus from Egypt. You know, as an Israelite reading Genesis, uh, an Israelite is meant to realize that this faithful God who saved Jacob is also the faithful God who rescues them from Egypt. And God keeps his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by saving his people from slavery. And he protects and provides for his people in the wilderness, leading them to the promised land. Well, this, and then the Exodus in turn points to an even greater rescue the rescue and redemption that Jesus, the promised offspring of Abraham, has accomplished for sinners like us. God made us to know and to worship Him, but we have turned away from Him to live for ourselves. We've all worshipped idols, whatever those idols may be. And because we have rejected our Creator, we face His righteous judgment against us. But this God who is faithful to Jacob, this God is a God full of grace and mercy. He did not leave us in our sin, but in faithfulness to his promises. He sent his son, Jesus, the promised offspring of Abraham, to save us. You know, I think one, one remarkable detail in this text, you, know, you read about how Jacob set his face toward the promised land. Well, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and to the cross. So just as Jacob obeys the Father's call to return, 
Jesus obeys his father's call to lay down his life for unworthy sinners. And Jesus died and resurrected to save all who trust in him as their only Lord and Saviour. Friends, this is the good news that this chapter points us to, that we have a Redeemer who frees us from sin slavery, who delivers us, who sets us free that we might live for him. He saves us by dying and by rising from the dead so that we might be set free from slavery to sin and death. Beloved, this faithful God is our confidence and hope. We can trust him to bring us safely through the wilderness of this world. And in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. Our destination is sure. This past week, we remembered the life of Mary Sung. How can we be sure that we will see her again? Because of Christ, our destination is sure if we trust in Him. One day, God will glorify us with Christ when He returns in glory. So where are we going? How will we get there? And how can we be sure that we will arrive? God calls us. He invites us to follow Him by faith, trusting Him to protect and to provide, and He will safely lead us home. Now, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who gave up His Son surely will graciously give us all things. John Newton said these words in another hymn, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you that you indeed are a God of faithfulness. You are the God who makes and keeps promises to your people, and you have gloriously fulfilled your promises by sending your Son, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, to rescue us from slavery, to deliver us into the freedom of knowing you and enjoying you. Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts away from any idols that we cherish. Help us to trust in you alone. Father, we pray that your Spirit would powerfully press your Word on our hearts, that you would cause your Word to take root and cause your Word to bear fruit in our lives. May it bear the good fruit of trust and obedience. Father, show us Christ, show us our need for Him, and help us to find our rest in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.